If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Tara, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 184 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin, bringing you another whirlwind episode, a podnado, if you will. My guest today is writer and director Thunder Levin. That's right, Thunder Levin. If you know me, you know that I am obsessed. I love Sharknado, the Sharknado movies. And Thunder Levin wrote Sharknado 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we're going through them all. If you're looking for an oral history of the approach to writing this blockbuster franchise, well, you have come to the right place. Because this episode is delivering the NATOs. I'm telling you that right now. We also dive into some of Thunder's other mockbuster movies, A.E. Apocalypse Now, American Warships, and Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood. This episode has got it all. Thunder 11's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to remind everyone that Timmy is fine. He is not in the well. Timmy from Lassie, John Provost, was here last week. An amazing conversation with one of the biggest child stars from the 50s and 60s. That's just waiting for you right after you finish this one. But right now, let's NATO it out and dive in with Thunder Levin. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest. He's the writer-director of Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood, American Warships, A.E. Apocalypse Earth, Geo Disaster, and he is the writer of one of my favorite obsessions, Sharknado, Thunder Wrote 1, 2, 3, and 4. All right, enough said. Welcome to the show, Thunder Levin. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for hanging with me on my podcast. Appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Excited to talk to you. Like uh, many, I was caught up in the frenzy of Sharknado when it came out. The ability to talk to the person that helped create that is a joy. But before we get to that, let's work up to that. I'd like to talk about some of the other work that you've done and just sort of maybe what got you into writing in the first place. I know your father was an award-winning journalist. So did you just grow up around that and it was sort of in your blood and just writing was something that came naturally to you? I think being in that environment uh, helped being in a, uh, I don't know, an erudite East Coast liberal intelligentsia milieu, if you will, to use way fancier words than we ever used in Sharknado. <laughs> just being in, the, in that environment growing up in New York City there were always possibilities as to what I might do. And, you know, having a, a father who, uh, who was a journalist certainly just sort of gives you a, I don't know, a wider worldview, I guess, opposed to maybe growing up in a small town. I don't know that he so much 
uh, affected me becoming a writer. I mean, I resisted becoming a writer for a long time. I was very set on on simply being a director. I started into writing just sort of because everybody said, well, if you want to direct, write something that people want to buy and attach yourself. So, you know, that's sort of how I really got into writing. But it, it was more about science fiction, I think, being I was like a Star Trek fan when I was a little kid. And that that sort of sparked my imagination. So my father certainly helped with an appreciation for language. I think uh, my imagination and and some of the fanciful ways my brain goes probably had more to do with my mom because she was a, a science fiction fan and her father, my uh, maternal grandfather, was one of the founding members of the British Interplanetary Society, uh, along with um, Arthur C. Clarke and some other notables. So that at least uh, played an equal an equal role in whatever I've ended up becoming. <laughs> so a big Star Trek fan. I mean, one of the things I love about the movies that you do, Sharknado is littered with them, is there's a million pop culture references. Like you just love kind of putting nods to things in it. I love that. I love when you see something and you go, oh, that was, oh, that was clever. That was cool. That's always been a big thing for me. And producers and production executives have always pushed back against it. And they say it pulls you out of the out of the story. And I'm like, no, if a story is taking place in our present day contemporary society, these references are part of our lives. So, of course, they should be part of movies. And I got a lot of pushback on that. And in fact, in the first Sharknado, I had a whole bunch of pop culture references and I was forced to take them out. Basically, everything except the Jaws references, which they sort of grudgingly acknowledged were appropriate, I had to take them all out. And then by the fourth movie, they were forcing me to put in even more pop culture references than I intended because it had been such a, a popular thing. So, yeah, it's. To me, it's just natural, and I'm glad that fans appreciate it. When you approach putting a pop culture reference in a movie, do you like it to be so subtle that people maybe don't get it the first time, or do you like to hit them on the head? <laughs> I'm guessing the uh, producers towards the end of four were like, hit them on the head with it, but like yeah. the subtleness of it. Yeah, well, by Sharknado 4, we were required to hit everyone over the head with everything. Um, <laughs> both, to be honest. I mean, the, there are, I, I like to put in subtle ones that, you know, you know only real diehards will catch and, and more obvious ones uh, to sort of clue people in. You know, a more obvious one is sort of like a, uh, a key on a map that will tell you what to look for and what the little symbols mean, you know, and maybe it gets you to look for, for more subtle ones that are buried a bit deeper. When you look back at some of your work, are you like, oh, some people never caught those? <laughs> like they were just so... They were just, you know, they're there, but yeah. Yeah. In Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood, I had some aliens references in there and I don't think anybody caught them. So yeah, I, I think there are a few of those. You know, Sharknado was not a subtle uh, storytelling process. And so the, the pop culture references were not subtle, usually. On your path to becoming a director, writer, director, you worked with the legendary Roger Corman. Did. In the early 80s, as a still- uh, Late 80s. I'm not that old. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Late 80s. <laughs> <laughs> how was it working with him? And how did he, did he help kind of mold the career that was to come? You know, I didn't work one-on-one -on -one with Roger much. Um, by the time I was working for his company, he was just sort of an executive who owned the company. He wasn't that hands-on that somebody on the crew would work with him much. My main memory of, of Roger, where we had direct interaction, was the first day on set of uh, Strip to Kill 2. And I was a still photographer. 
I'd gotten a whole talking to by the uh, production manager. I mean, it was a movie about strippers. So there was, there was nudity and it was in all the actresses contracts, uh, apparently, or so I was told that there was to be no still photography during nude scenes. And I'd got a talking to from the production manager about that. I was okay. I won't, I won't do that. I leave my camera in the other room. At the beginning of the first day on set, Roger comes to the set, you know, to give everybody a pep talk. And then he takes me aside and he says, I want you to take lots of nude shots. That's how we'll sell the film. And I was like, you're the boss. Roger knows best. Yes, Roger knows best. And, and what was funny about that was that by the end of that film, I didn't even want to look at naked women. You know, even at home with my, uh, with my wife, we had to have sex with the lights off because I'd seen too many naked naked bodies for in too short a period. <laughs> the other thing about working for Roger, though, and more importantly to a directing career, whether he was on set or not, he had rules for how things were done. You could only have a certain number of takes. And if you had too many takes on one shot, then the next three shots, you could only have one or two takes. And if you laid dolly track, you had to use it for at least two different setups because otherwise it was eating too much time. He had all these rules for making film production go quickly and less expensively. And I learned a lot from that. And it helped me in making low budget movies because there's a, there's a whole skill to it. it. In my opinion, anybody can make a $200 million film because you're surrounding yourself with the best people possible and you have all the time in the world and all the resources. And if something's not working, you throw money at it until it works. But having to make a competent film on a two or three week shoot with no money to do things. So when something goes wrong, you have to be clever and figure out a different way to do things. That's actually a lot harder and a lot more challenging. And I think it's a good way to learn because then when you move into bigger things, you know, when things go wrong, you're not going to get a stress. Does that process start with the writing? Like when you write something, do you have to kind of think about the scene at hand and how many people might have to be in it or, you know, just all those kind of elements that go into it that could times 10 the cost? Sometimes. I mean, it, I guess in general, when you're making a low budget movie, yes. When I did Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood, I knew we had very little money and very little time to shoot it. And I knew I was going to have to shoot it, <laughs> which is a big part of it, because if someone else is directing, you know, it's like, well, whatever, they'll figure it out. That was your directorial debut. Uh, Yeah. I mean, on a feature film standpoint, I right. directed countless other things. But yeah, so, the, so I was very much aware of that. And I had actually written a big final action sequence for that film. As we were getting closer to production and we were breaking down the budget and seeing just what we were going to be able to do, I realized I was never going to be able to do this big action sequence at the end. So I sort of, uh, speaking of aliens, I took a uh, page from the uh, Aliens playbook and I made the finale more personal. So it would became a one-on-one -on -one thing between the, the hero and the worst of the zombies. And that, and that allowed us to, to hopefully at least generate intensity without the need for, for huge over-the-top action sequence. Now, when it came to Sharknado, it was a very different story because we knew it had to be this big, over-the-top, ridiculous thing. My marching orders from the asylum were to not take budget into account when I was writing. And so we went through the entire development process and the script was approved without ever thinking about budget. And then for months, there was sort of this unspoken elephant in the room, like, okay, we all know there's no way we can shoot this film as written. And so right near the end, they said, okay, we need you to do one more revision where you make this shootable. And it still wasn't shootable, but it, it wasn't as impossible as the earlier drafts were. Why did you decide not to direct Sharknado? 
Ah, well, I just thought that was a brilliant career move. <laughs> there were a lot of different uh, factors in that. The biggest one was simply that I had another film that I'd written that was scheduled to shoot at the same time. And it was a small but serious uh, science fiction film. Well, more serious. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't tongue in cheek. And since I'd already done sort of a tongue in cheek disaster film in Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood, I thought, let me do this serious science fiction thing, which is kind of what I got into the business to do in the first place. And it meant I got to go off to the jungles of Costa Rica for a couple of months. And that was fun and exciting. It was an, quite an adventure. That was the main factor. The, there were lesser factors in that I'd written a $100 million film and I wasn't quite sure how to do it on a million dollar budget. I guess I was a little concerned about being pigeonholed as a guy who only did this campy stuff. And of course, that's happened anyhow. <laughs> so yeah, so that that was that. I mean, in hindsight, probably wasn't the smartest career move I ever made. I mean, Anthony Ferrante, the director of Sharknado, and I kind of kind of split the attention that came uh, in the wake of Sharknado. If I had directed it, and assuming it had been as successful as it was, you know, then I would have been the the lone creative genius. And probably it would have been an even bigger career boost than it was. But, you know, uh, if wishes were fishes. Right. So the movie you did do then was A.E. Apocalypse Earth. Yeah. When I when I made it, it was just called A.E. Apocalypse Earth was sort of tacked on at the end. I liked the idea that it was just called A.E. and it was very mysterious. And people kept asking me, what does A.E. stand for? And eventually I started saying almost everything. But uh, yeah, that was the film starred uh, Adrian Paul and Richard Grieco. And Bale Rodriguez. And Bally Rodriguez. Yeah. Who had never really had never really acted before. Um, it was certainly her first leading role. And that was an interesting process, seeing how she uh, learned how to be part of a, a film cast and a film crew. And she was she was a, a very sweet, uh, sweet person who it was it was interesting. She's a Costa Rican. That's how we cast her because she was a local. But she was an international model, so she didn't have a strictly Costa Rican accent. She spoke English pretty much perfectly, but she didn't have didn't have a definable accent. It was just sort of an odd accent, and that was perfect for the character she was playing because she wasn't playing a Costa Rican. So that actually worked out to our benefit. Question on that is one one of the notes that I found when looking up some of the research on the movies is, was the name of the movie changed because it was close to the release of After Earth? You know, the asylum is famous for making quote unquote mockbusters. And so their business model basically is to come out with movies with very similar titles to big blockbuster movies. And all the films that I've made for them were theoretically mockbusters, but they have to make the decision about what films they're going to do mockbusters of you know, months or even a year ahead of time. And so it's turned out that every film that I've done a mockbuster of, the big studio movies have actually been terrible and have mostly underperformed. And so a lot of times I've been able to say, at least in my mind, truthfully, you know, my, our production values may have been much less, but I actually made better movies than, uh, than Battleship or After Earth or um, I don't even remember what Geo Disaster was a mockbuster of, to be honest. Geostorm? Geostorm, yeah. Shows you how quickly it came and went. Yeah, Dean Devlin, I think, after Independence Day. Right. I actually <laughs> like Dean Devlin, but, yeah, but that, that movie, not so much. So no, AE was not, was not changed because of that. AE was changed because the asylum doesn't deal in subtlety. And so a film called AE was not an asylum title, but Apocalypse Earth was an asylum title. 
Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Thunder Levin, but I want to take a quick break and thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with Thunder Levin. Got it. Okay, so... In fact, there's... there's I'm sorry to interrupt. There's no. a funny story about that. The producers came to me and they said, we're going to change the title. And I forget what it was, but whatever whatever the title was that they had come up with gave away the twist at the end of the movie. And I was like, guys, you can't call it this. And so I threw out a bunch of subtle, mysterious titles. And they were like, this was an email from the, from the head guy, David Ramawi, said, I'm glad you're thinking Jaws. How did he say this? I guess he said, I'm glad you're thinking Jaws when you made the movie, but it's time to think Sharknado when promoting it. And so we, we finally settled on Apocalypse Earth because there is an apocalypse in the very beginning of the movie. And so um, hopefully people wouldn't get the twist right away. So with these mockbusters, mm-hmm. what is the asylum? Do they get the industry kind of knows what's happening? They kind of know what Will Smith is doing or yeah. Dean. And then they kind of say, hey, Thunder, you know, this is the basic thing. Kind of use some of this plot line or so that we can kind of get this out. I remember as I look, as I think back, I remember going to like Blockbuster and, you know, you'd see these on the shelves, right? And they would be like, right. oh, wait, that looks just like the movie that's out. Right. Well, the, the business model was invented during the heyday of Blockbuster. And the idea was that your grandma would be going to Blockbuster to rent a movie to watch with the kids. And she'd see, see this title that looked a lot like a title everybody was talking about. And she'd think, oh, that's what the kids want to see. And they'd rent it. But from a filmmaking standpoint, we never approached it that way. The Asylum would provide you with anywhere be, would provide you with a title and anywhere between a one sentence and one paragraph quick pitch of what the movie should be about and then it would be up to you to develop from there and usually this would happen before at least in my case because I didn't follow the upfronts or or stuff like that I wouldn't know anything about the film I was mockbusting I mean in battleship it was obvious because There'd been such a huge early media campaign and it was, you know, about this beloved uh, board game. But that's all I knew about Battleship was that it was about a board game. And they uh, their marching orders for Battleship was uh, it just had to be a movie that could be called Battleships. That was literally the only instruction I was given. And it wasn't until we were well into the story plotting thing where I had come up with uh, first it was going to be North Korea was the bad guy. And then it was going to be a rogue terrorist organization. And then it was going to be a rogue terrorist organization pretending to be North Korea. But whichever way I spun it, the fact that they had these this advanced technology that was putting the rest of the US Navy out of commission was always a bit of a stretch. And late in the development process, it was in the outline process, I hadn't started writing the script yet. I got this, uh, this email from the director of development at the asylum saying, Okay, everything you're doing is great, but we want you to change the bad guys to be space aliens. To me, I thought that was the greatest script note I had ever gotten because it was just so ridiculous and so over the top. But in fact, it actually solved all my problems because now there was a way for it to make perfect sense that the enemy had this advanced weaponry that was defeating the whole US military. It's kind of it's kind of one of those stories where you you get these bizarre notes from development people uh, that writers talk about all the time that just seem ridiculous and make no sense at all. 
But in this case, it was both ridiculous and made perfect sense. But I didn't know at the time that Battleship, the studio movie, actually dealt with aliens. And to be honest, I felt a little manipulated when I found that out. So they knew? So they knew. They had found out. But it did actually help my story. For AE, I didn't know anything about After Earth. My marching orders for AE was a band of humans struggle to survive on a hostile alien planet. That was it. You know, when we're making these mockbusters, we are not trying to make spoofs of the studio films. Internally, within the filmmaking process, we're just making the best movies we can on very low budgets based on a premise that they're then going to later be able to market in, in a similar fashion. As filmmakers, we really don't have anything to do with that marketing process. The one original driver of American Battleship was to use the name Battleship, but that movie was changed to American Warships because <laughs> Universal sued, right? Right. It infringed, and you had to change that to American Warships, starring right. Mario Van Peebles. Mario Van Carl Peebles Weathers. and the great Carl Weathers. Yeah, so the original title was Battleships, plural, and then it was changed to American Battleship. And what happened with the lawsuit was, I believe it was the British distributor. Don't, don't hold me to this. I don't want to get sued for libel if it was somebody else. But if, my, if memory serves, it was a, the British distributor who released the film early, and they just called it Battleship. And that's where the lawsuit started. Ah. And then the post, because they wanted to stop that from being released. And then the poster was very similar to the Universal movie poster. The whole lawsuit was only about the marketing campaign. They were never suing for copyright infringement for the content of the movie. So, I mean, I remember getting a, a call from the asylum's lawyer and talking to me about stuff. And I was like, they're not suing the film I made. They're suing your marketing campaign. And in fact, I never had to talk to anybody about it after that. They, I guess they ended up settling. And the way they settled was to change the title and to change the poster. Here's an interesting- oh, But, but here, here's oh. a funny thing about that. Sorry. No, go ahead. The funny thing about that whole scenario is that Universal was suing the asylum for a movie that was going to be released on Sci-Fi Channel. Sci-Fi is owned by Universal. <laughs> Somebody didn't get the memos that they were passing around, I guess, huh? Well, in, in fact, a lot of, a lot of people- at Sci-Fi Channel, apparently. It's funny because when Sharknado blew up, the asylum was very concerned about how to present me to the powers that be, because a lot of people almost lost their jobs over American warships at Sci-Fi Channel. And in fact, the Sci-Fi Channel original movies department was probably going to be shut down until Sharknado became this unexpected hit. Ah. All right. So you see, you saved them. You saved it. So, so I both risked everybody's job for the way they were looking at it. I both almost got everyone fired and then saved their jobs. That's a real hero story right there. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, this is a quote. I think I got this off of Wikipedia. Uh-oh. So then it has to be accurate. It has to be accurate. Levin's work was largely responsible for the resurgence of shark exploitation films. Shark exploitation is an exploitation film subgenre. The Sharknado series soared mockbuster shark <laughs> shark exploitation to new heights of fame. <laughs> so they they credited you for a series of shark movies that came after including Ozark Shark, The Shallows, Five-Headed Shark Attack, Sharkenstein, and many, many more. <laughs> We're born because of the blowing up of Sharknado. All right. So let's talk Sharknado. So originally you told them they were crazy, right? When they, they approached you with the shark storm idea. Well, I didn't say that. No, <laughs> well, I didn't. I'm paraphrasing. 
Yes, it, it, that, that's not entirely accurate. So, so the, the way it started, I had just done American Warships. And despite the lawsuit, internally, the Asylum was very happy with the film. They thought it was one of their, their best films to date. And so they were eager to have me do something else. And, and we spent a few months talking about what I was going to do next. And the AE idea was on the table. And there was a giant monster movie on the table. And then they came to me and they said, what we really want you to do is this movie called Shark Storm. And I was like, eh, no, not really. Haven't we seen enough shark movies? I, I felt like the genre had been played out. And, and the Asylum has a habit, despite their low budgets, of playing all their movies very straight. They don't go in for, uh, for spoofs or satire or camp. And so trying to make a movie called Shark Storm, I knew we weren't going to have the budget to do it right. And it just, it just didn't interest me. So they said, okay, fine, we'll find somebody else to do it. And uh, we went ahead and talked about AE, and we talked about uh, this giant monster movie, which eventually became uh, Atlantic Rim, and then was title was changed to From Beneath or something like that. And I was actually developing, at one point, I was developing three different movies for them at the same time. And they came back to me, and they said, okay, forget Shark Storm. Now it's called Sharknado. And I said, what do sharks have to do with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? <laughs> and they said, no, no, no. Sharknado, a tornado of sharks. And I said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And as long as I can play it that way, I'm in. Because I knew a movie called Sharknado could not be played seriously. I mean, it, it had to be played overly seriously, basically, to make it work. And they said, no, we agree. A movie called Sharknado has to be a bit ridiculous. And so then once I had that permission, we were off to the races because I knew it was going to be a blast. It was just too much fun. So yeah, uh, crazy like a fox at that point. And what had happened in the in the meantime, apparently, is that uh, the Asylum wanted to do the Shark Storm movie and uh, Sci-Fi Channel had a title for a movie, Sharknado, but they didn't have a story for it. And so when the Asylum said, we want to do a Shark Storm movie, they said, okay, great, but call it Sharknado. And they came back to me and they said, okay, Sharknado. And I said, okay, now now we're going to have some fun. It's a title that immediately grabs you. Yeah. And I I wasn't aware of it, obviously, the marketing campaign, but with the poster and all that, that played a lot into why it was so popular. You know, like it just grabbed everyone's attention. It was just so easy to digest what this was and just seemed so so crazy. I read that the Sci-Fi Channel actually rejected it twice, and then somebody slipped a line into one of the Leprechaun movies about a Sharknado. So the name Sharknado actually kind of made its way into a Leprechaun movie before. <laughs> yeah, a movie that it was Leprechaun's Revenge, I guess, written by, coincidentally or not, Anthony C. Ferrante. And it was just a line of dialogue. Two characters are hiding out from the Leprechauns, and they say something like, uh, I hope our town doesn't go the way of that other town. It never recovered after the Sharknado hit. And that was it. And then the, the scene just went on. It was just a conversation. And then I guess Anthony and his collaborator pitched sci-fi something called Sharknado, and they didn't go for it. But the title stuck with them. And so when Asylum wanted to do Sharkstorm, they said, okay, but change the title. And it apparently, um, not apparently, because I never got any, I don't know what, what the, the story pitch uh, for the original Sharknado was that they turned down, because I was just given some notes from the asylum about things the movie could have in it. And then I had to create a story. So then when I turned down the directing job, they tried to find somebody else to direct the film and they couldn't. They went through their whole 
roster of people and nobody wanted to do a movie called Sharknado. I guess they thought it would be the end of their careers. <laughs> and then apparently Anthony was had a meeting with them to pitch some horror film ideas. And he looked at the, the development board that's in the office. And there on the development board was a movie called Sharknado. And kudos to him that he didn't just immediately call his lawyer, because that's probably what I would have done. But uh, apparently he remained fairly calm and asked about this project and said, hey, that's that's my project. And once it was all explained, because I don't think anyone at the asylum knew that he had pitched a Sharknado project, they decided that the safest bet, since uh, they couldn't find anyone to direct it anyhow, was to have Anthony direct it. And then they wouldn't get sued. <laughs> I mean, of course, you can't actually sue over a title. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't have. I don't know. It was kismet. It all it all worked out the way it was supposed to. So I was watching a documentary that said to actually get actors to commit to the role, including yeah. Tara and I, and they actually pitched the movie to them as as a movie called Dark Skies. Dark Skies. I was in Costa Rica doing pre-production on AE, and I get an email from the asylum saying, can you please make up a copy of the script, a file, PDF of the Sharknado script, but with the title Dark Skies on it? And I was like, first of all, there was a movie out at the time called Dark Skies. So why are they picking that title? And B, why couldn't someone in the office <laughs> have created this file? They didn't need the writer to change the title on the, you know, on the script. But yeah, I was like, why are we doing this? And they said, we can't, we can't get anybody to agree to be in a movie called Sharknado. So we're changing the title. And, and what's funny is that I had done the same thing on Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood. That had been written with the title Restless Dead, but I thought Restless Dead was way too generic a title. We weren't going to get any attention. And so I changed the title to Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood. But my casting director begged and pleaded, said, please don't make that the title until after the cast has been assembled. And so we didn't. And we got our cast, including C. Thomas Howell. And uh, it was in the midst of filming that I informed them that the movie was actually going to be called Mutant Vampire Zombies from the Hood. And they all freaked out and they they staged an intervention where they all, all got me alone and said, you can't call it this. And I said, trust me, trust me, this is the better title. This is going to work for marketing. And, the, and apparently the same thing happened on Sharknado. And when it came out that it was going to be called Sharknado, both Ian and Tara called their agents to try and get off the film, thinking it was going to be the end of their career. Little did they know. Little did they know. But we knew. The only one who didn't do that was John Hurt. John knew right away that that was the smart way to go. He was he was the biggest champion of Sharknado right from the right from the moment he was cast and supported us all the way through. He was one, the biggest actor to come to the first uh, the first Comic Con. He got it, and thank God he did. Did he help ease the other cast members into the name? I think so. I wasn't on set for the first film. I was in Costa Rica. Right, right, but right. Uh, that's what Anthony says. Okay, so you wrote Sharknado. You head off to Costa Rica to make Apocalypse Earth. So is the first time you saw your script come to life, not necessarily the day it premiered, but like what, what were your reactions once you saw it? How close it, to your actual vision did it match? It was actually the day it premiered. Okay. Anthony wouldn't let me see it. We were actually sharing an editing suite. I was cutting AE uh, and this guy walks in that I've never met and he says, you're Thunder Levin? I said, yeah, I want to punch you. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? And he said, I directed Sharknado. 
And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, I could see why you'd want to punch me. But yeah, so then we we were both cutting our films uh, in the same editing suite. And every once in a while, I'd try and look over and see what they were doing. And he'd like, stop. And he'd say, don't look. I don't want you to see it until it's done. And I heard that they were adding a car chase. And there was not only no place in nowhere in the script was there a car chase. There was no reason for there to be a car chase. There was no logical justification for there to be a car chase. But I heard they were adding a car chase and that got me a little worried. So I didn't actually see the movie. Everyone else had seen it. I didn't actually see the movie until it premiered. I had no idea what to expect. So once you saw your script come to life, what were your thoughts on the movie? Did it match your vision? (sighs) The, uh... Well, of course, it wasn't as grand as my vision. I mean, I'd written a, a movie where Los Angeles is filled with water and all the streets are flooded, you know, up to your waist and there are sharks swimming in them. And of course, there was no way to pull that off on a $1 million budget. So, I mean, my expectations were tempered going in. I knew it couldn't be my actual vision. And that's one of the reasons why I hadn't directed it, because I knew I wouldn't be able to achieve my vision on the budget that we had. But then Anthony, made a lot of changes in the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie where he rearranged things. He didn't actually invent too much new stuff. He didn't change who the characters were, but he arranged the order of some events in the, in the first act. And so I, for the first 15, 20 minutes, I was sitting there going, what the hell is going on? And then gradually it got back into what I had laid out. And so it, I would say by the end of it, I was pleased. It had brought my vision to life within the budget parameters available. Okay. All right. It was the $1 million version of my vision. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> so if, when you're watching it on premiere night and suddenly everything's blowing up on Twitter, it's sort of a case study in social media. Interestingly yeah. enough, though, the actual premiere numbers I read were lower than a normal sci-fi channel movie, 1.37 versus 1.5. But the NATO of tweets, the tweet NATO, if you will, created on social media with celebrities and such just elevated it to a whole different level. Yeah. Uh, f- first, let's clear one thing up. The the ratings, there, there was a lot of press about how the ratings were actually lower than a typical sci-fi channel original movie. What they didn't take into account is that up until that night, all the Sci-Fi Channel original movies had premiered on Saturday night. And this one, when there was no network TV competition, and this one premiered on a weeknight when there was lots of competition. So that that's kind of a false metric to say that our ratings were lower. As for what it became that night, it was utterly surreal. We had an inkling that that it was going to be big because for about two weeks leading up to the release, there was a lot of a lot of buzz, a lot of word of mouth, a lot of press. I mean, I'd done a bunch of interviews for Sharknado, so we had we had a clue that it was not going to be the typical asylum sci-fi movie, sci-fi channel movie. But we had this live tweet scheduled, and I'd done one the year before for American Warships, and you know we would get on and. There'd be like 100, 200 people following the tweet, and a few of them would be asking serious questions, and the rest would be telling us how bad we suck. And so that's what I was expecting for Sharknado. And then I got on Twitter, and something bizarre and miraculous was happening, because you couldn't get a word in edgewise. Every time you hit refresh, there was hundreds more Sharknado tweets, and celebrities started tweeting about it. I think where it started was with, um, with Mia Farrow who posted this picture of her and Philip Roth supposedly watching it. 
and tweeting, OMG, 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 Sharknado. It came out later that the picture she posted wasn't actually them watching Sharknado. It was a picture from them looking at their computer for something weeks before. But it was her tweet that sort of set off the celebrity avalanche of tweets. And then everybody started joining in. And it was just, it was just amazing. And, you know, it was kind of, kind of one of those nights you dream about when you dream of being a filmmaker, of having this huge hit. And suddenly the next morning, the phone is ringing off the hook. I mean, I got up the next morning after Sharknado and I had something like 50 messages on my voicemail and more than that, uh, emails. It was just extraordinary. And the, and the way people came together and the way they all got in the spirit of it and trading tweets with celebrities, it was, it was just an amazing night. Right. Yeah. Will Wheaton was all over it. And then uh, Corey Monteith, who <sighs> passed yeah. away from uh, shortly after from Glee, yeah. his last two tweets, which are yeah. still there. I, I went and looked. Really? Harbaugh Sharknado. But yeah. it, it just, it was fun because cool thing about Twitter is when, when Sharknado's trending and like a Will Wheaton tweets and somebody replies to a Will Wheaton, that one now that, you know, nobody can do that. And they, that gets elevated as well because there's so much heat on the original tweet and right. it kind of just goes Yeah, it's crazy. a snowball effect. It's amazing. Huge snowball effect. It had never really happened. I think that's where a lot of awareness of the value of social media for TV and movies really sort of came from. At one point, they were saying there was 5,000 tweets per 5, minute. 5,000 tweets per minute, yeah. It's an insane amount. Yeah, more than The Red Wedding. <laughs> right, and that was yeah, that was a big one on HBO, so. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick break. And now back to my amazing conversation with Thunder Eleven. We're about to dive into the social media approach to Sharknado 2, and we're back. So to thank the fans for Sharknado 2, you turn to social media to let them help name subtitle or the the second part of the movie. The second in part theory. of the uh, in theory. <laughs> in theory. In theory. The second part of the title. So Yeah. Yeah, the subtitle, the second one. Right, right, right. That was a marketing thing that sci-fi did. I have no way of I'm I don't want to impugn anybody, but I have no way of knowing if that title actually came from social media. Or if it came from the sci-fi marketing department, I, I don't know. I never saw any statistics saying that the second one was got the most tweets or something. So I don't know. <laughs> Two points of interest. I read Steve Gutenberg was quite upset because he was offered the role of Finn. Turned it, turned down. it down. Yeah. Later got La Valanchua. Not as popular. Not sure anything has been as popular as Sharknado. No, nothing. Not a single movie since 2013 has been as popular as Sharknado. And Sharknado was like, (laughs) well, (laughs) well, yeah, well, yes. Uh, (laughs) And in that kind of frenzy, I, you could harken back to like the old days when like you'd go old days, like the, you know, the eighties and the, where you'd go and everyone would line up at a movie theater. Right. There's that excitement that first day would be wrapped around a theater. Like it was kind of reminiscent of that. Let me ask you a question. So it was, I, I actually make a big thing of that. When I do public speaking appearances, I make a point about how Sharknado actually saved civilization as we know it, because it used to be that we would get this, uh, this sort of shared language, right? I mean, from Neanderthals sitting around a campfire to the oral histories of of native peoples, to the Greek plays, to The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. For a whole generation, if you didn't watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson before you went to bed, you wouldn't know what people were talking about the next day at work. But we lost that when 
you know, you could start watching things whenever you wanted. And we didn't all go to the movie theater to see the same thing at the same time. We didn't all tune in on TV to have that water cooler moment. And then Sharknado sort of brought back the water cooler moment because everybody was talking about it all at the same time. And I think it shows how important these uh, this common common vocabulary is to to make society a cohesive whole. Oh, I agree 100%. I think I I always kind of think when Netflix and stuff they release all things at one time like eight episodes at once versus when they like the Mandalorian and stuff like that where they release something right. week after week after week. You, they totally give up that moment yeah. and the ability for people to talk about it. Absolutely. Cause you don't know if your friends have seen it or not. And so e- either you're going to piss them off with spoilers or you, you hold it in and you don't talk about it. And by the time they've seen it, you've forgotten what you saw. Yeah. I'm right. Cause you can I, never remember what happened when, right, cause you've watched right. it so fast. Right. Just to kind of recap the, the 1.3 million viewers, which happened to sure. be a Thursday when they replayed it on July 18th, it had 1.89 million. And then they did it again a third right. time where it broke 2 million viewers. So I think it was 2.2, the third show. Yes, yes. And so just it just kept building and building and building, which yeah. was incredible. I, I have a question. So that, that debuted July 11th, 2013. On July 10th, what had been your plans? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, there was a party, uh, a screening party for the West Coast airing. So the idea was we were going to, you know, each independently from our homes, take part in the live tweet for the East Coast airing. And then we were going to go to this party for the West Coast airing. And things got so crazy during the East Coast airing that by the time I got out in the car to go to the party, there was this huge traffic jam. I don't, I don't know why, because it should have been, should have been late enough. The traffic would not have been that bad. But there was this huge traffic and I got like three miles down the freeway and realized I wasn't going to make it to the party. And I turned around and went home and just got back on the on Twitter for the uh, for the West Coast showing. Yeah. The, the real question is, what was what were my plans for the 12th? Right. Because well, that's right, that was, like, what, what were you going to do before <laughs> it became clear that uh, you had to immediately start working on Sharknado 2? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> that night was a, a turning point and nothing nothing before it is. So what was going to happen is not no longer relevant. Was the writing process then for Sharknado 2 a lot more difficult in the sense that there were more fingers in the pie? Because is it is it fair to say that's what happens when with Sharknado, they didn't know it was going to be the biggest thing ever. Suddenly, right. now the biggest thing ever occurred. And we have to go again. Do the executives start to think, well, we're a little, we, we need to be involved. We need to yes. be more involved. Yes. Each successive Sharknado had more and more fingers in the pie. The first one, like I said, the original movies department, it looked like it was going to be shut down and nobody really cared. I got one round of notes from sci-fi on the original Sharknado script, and they weren't even particularly major. On the, on the second one, they determined up front where it was going to be set. In fact, I found out where Sharknado 2 was going to be set from the press. New York? I, I saw, yeah, I saw Sci-Fi's announcement that Sharknado 2 was going to take place in New York. And I was like, well, I'm glad somebody consulted me. <laughs> but it, it worked out perfectly because I'm from New York. So it was a great opportunity to tell a story about my hometown. And then, yeah, there were a lot more eyes on it. And the whole development process, we were all sort of throwing ideas in, in a hat. And I pitched a story. They We got certain parameters. It had to take place in New York City. It had to to 
make use of all the great famous landmarks in New York. Uh, and it had to involve family, just as the first one had. So, okay, I, I pitched an idea. It started out that Finn would be going to the United Nations to receive an award for his heroism in the, in the first Sharknado, and his, he would be meeting his parents there. And then, you know, we all threw ideas in a hat, and there would be sort of a, a group think about, okay, we like this one best, we don't like that one, things would get winnowed down. And instead of his parents, what if it's his sister and, and some nephews? Because we don't want old fogies in the cast. We want younger people in the cast. That, that sort of came from sci-fi. Uh, so it was his sister and her kids. And then the idea of his, uh, his long-lost best friend from adolescence. And, and it, it all sort of evolved. But there were a lot of people who had their eyes on it. And the one thing they kept asking me was, what is going to be the Sharknado moment? which is what they were referring to the moment in the first movie where Finn dives into the shark with his chainsaw and then cuts his way out. And then Nova was in the same shark and he pulls her out. And that drove everybody insane. How was I going to top that moment? And I kept telling them, I don't know, but I'll figure it out by the time I get there. And they didn't like that at all because <laughs> they were all very nervous because, you know, I guess everybody figured, oh, we have to we have to top the first one. And if we don't, our, our jobs are on the line. But fortunately, Anthony and then the asylum went to bat for me and they said, leave him be, let him do his thing. Uh, so once we had sort of a, a general outline of what the story would be, I went off to write the script. And to be honest, I didn't know what the Sharknado moment would be. But I was writing the opening on the airplane, and I think they had, someone had suggested that April, Tara Reed's character, should end up with a chainsaw hand. And I was like, well, it shouldn't be a chainsaw because Bruce Campbell already did that in Evil Dead. So we'll have it be a different kind of saw. But yeah, okay, she'll lose her hand. So as I was writing the plane sequence where she loses her hand and, and the shark comes, I thought, okay, let's do something with the same shark, since that's basically what we'd done in, in the first movie, the same shark that swallowed Nova would be the one that swallowed Finn. So once I knew it was going to be the same shark, that just led to, okay, that means her hand is inside the shark. So we can do something with that. Since we'd set up that Finn and April were estranged by the end of the first movie, maybe they were back together. I thought, okay, he's going to pull the hand out and uh, take the ring off and propose to her with it. And so that combined with him uh, riding the shark down onto the spire of the Empire State Building became sort of the Sharknado moment. And I was very gratified because the night before we started shooting, the sci-fi executives, because the movie channel, the sci-fi original movie department was based in New York. And so the night before we started shooting, they took us out to dinner and the head of the department took me aside. And he said that moment at the end that we were all waiting for, that was genius. Thank you. And that was like one of the best moments I've ever I've ever had on in my writing career. Oh, yeah. And not only does he propose, he uses the gun that Tara was holding, kills the shark. My right. favorite part of that is when he just takes the ring off and then just tosses the arm away. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't even think twice. Like, oh, maybe we should, you know, just tosses well, that arm I, away. <laughs> I will give credit where it was where it's due. That was Anthony's idea. <laughs> it was just such a funny visual. So when you're writing the opening scene which was great. And this sequel did exactly what I think you needed to do, right? You built yeah. on the first one and made a better movie. Oh, when I say made a better movie, I mean, that's what you'd expect. Like the second one yeah. does every, rides the first one and 
all the beats are there, everything's there. So when you're writing that opening scene, when did you know you had Robert Hayes to put in all the airplane references? We put in the airplane references and then fate smiled upon us and we got Robert Hayes at the last minute. (laughs) What we had intended actually was for the pilot and co-pilot to be William Shatner and John Lithgow, because not only were we doing uh, airplane references, we were also doing Twilight Zone references, right? right. right? When he sees the shark out the window, that's a, that's a, an homage to the, to the famous, um, Twilight Zone bit, where in the original series, William Shatner sees this creature out on the wing of a plane. And then in the movie version, John Lithgow sees this creature out on the wing of the plane. So we wanted to have them as a pilot and co-pilot. And when it was presented to William Shatner, his agent responded with a one sentence email, Sharknay, no. (laughs) That was very disappointing. If this was Sharknado 3, I bet he would have said yes. Because that's when everyone just fell in line. Yeah, I bet. That would have been great, though. And then you could have still had Robert Hayes as a passenger with the drinking problem. Right, right. Yeah, so we didn't know who was going to be the pilot until like a day or two before the shoot. And I think at the last minute we found out and I went back and I threw in one extra airplane reference. But there were already several in there. And we already knew that the tail you know, of the plane would come through the clouds like a shark fin. We already knew that that we were going to have trouble with the number four engine and 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 a couple of other things like that. And I think the thing we flew we threw in at the end. Oh gosh, I don't remember. I know, I know there was one we threw in right at the last minute with Robert Hayes, but I honestly don't remember which one it was. Got it. Well, that was brilliant. It was great. I guess you put it out in the universe, and the universe just smiled on you. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, that one had not as many as. As three, it kind of broke open in three, but this one also, uh, Kelly Osborne, Will Wheaton, Richard Kind. Now, the Will Wheaton cameo was an interesting story because he had agreed to do it, but then the scheduling looked like he wasn't going to be able to do it because he was shooting a guest appearance on Big Bang Theory, and it didn't look like he was going to be able to get to the set in time. And so on the set of Big Bang Theory, he told them that he had this opportunity to go do a cameo in Sharknado. And was there any way he could make that? And not only did they get him out early enough to run to our set to do the cameo, but he actually threw in a line into Big Bang Theory, playing himself as Will Wheaton, saying he had a chance to do audition for Sharknado. (laughs) And that ended up being in the episode of the Big Bang Theory. So that was that was a great a great moment. That's awesome. That's that's awesome story. Oh, Billy Ray Cyrus is a surgeon. Judd Hirsch <laughs> is a taxi driver. Like, well, Judd Hirsch is a taxi driver. If that wasn't one of the best casting things to ever happen in a movie I wrote, I don't know what would be. I mean, that was just that was just so perfect. And he was great on set. He was just a great person to talk to, very friendly, and just a real class professional. He nailed everything. Yeah, he was a great add-on. He was like the John Hurd. Yeah, well, he was. Yeah, yeah. It was that. That was very much who's going to be our John Hurd. And so with Sharknado three, it sounds like they took some of your story ideas from two. Yeah, and kind of worked it into three. Well, I kind of. Well, yeah. you worked it into three. But yeah, yeah. You were the writer, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they. Um, <laughs> they being you. <laughs> yeah, they they decided. Sci-fi decided that it should be the East Coast, and and it should be kind of a road trip up the East Coast. And they wanted it to uh, either begin or end in Washington, D.C. And so Washington, D.C. 
provided me the opportunity to do what I'd wanted to do in the second one, which was to have Finn get an award. But even better, he could get it from the the president in the White House instead of the UN. This one had, I mean, every other moment seemed to be a cameo. So now people are coming out of the woodwork. Did people, people just wanted to get eaten by sharks? Yeah. 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 Um, In the second one, during the Twitter explosion of the first movie, a lot of celebrities tweeted. So we reached out to all of them when we were doing the second one. And most of them were like, you know, it was all in good fun, but we're not actually going to come do this <laughs> professionally. <laughs> uh, a few did, you know, um, Pat Oswald did and Will Wheaton did and Judah Friedlander. Great guy. He's a great guy and, and a real, a real person. No pretension to Judah Friedlander whatsoever. He would ride in the cast in the uh, crew van with us. Uh, at one point, we were stuck in traffic coming back from set in Queens. And he was like, just let me off here. I'm going to walk. And he, he just walked off through the streets of New York. It was great. He was a great guy. And we met up at a convention like the next year. He was someone who had tweeted and Anthony had tweeted back to him. And, and so he actually you know, put his money where his mouth was for the second one. Because the second one had such great ratings, the second one broke the record for the Sci-Fi Channel's original movie basically demolished it. And so by the third one, everyone was coming out of the woodwork. Right. I mean, I have a question. I read that Sarah Palin was first offered Mark Cuban's role as president, and then Donald Trump was actually approached as well. But then uh, he he turned it down. He backed out or something. And then yeah. my big question is, so Ann Coulter's in the movie. Yes. But she lives. <laughs> yeah. Was that a contract thing she had? She no. didn't want to die? I don't know. I, I was not involved in that conversation. Not that I wish ill on anyone, but I think seeing her right. getting eaten by a shark would have been amazing. Yes. Uh, there was a lot of discussion that we were going to try and get members of Congress and other politicians to appear and be eaten by sharks. And I don't know, I was not privy to the conversation as to whether Ann Coulter would be eaten or not. But, you know, we tried to get uh, we tried to get whoever we could. The Donald Trump story. I mean, people get mad at me because if only he'd been president in Sharknado, maybe he would have gotten it out of his system. <laughs> uh, and, and we'd all be better off today. He was first proposed as the mayor of New York in the second one. And when I heard that, I freaked out. I was like, Donald Trump is one of the most hated people in New York. It's literally impossible that he would be the mayor of New York City. You can't cast him as that. And they were like, yeah, you're probably right. And then when they found Robert Klein, who was just pitch perfect, he was the, he was the perfect combination of Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani, as we knew Giuliani back then before he lost his mind. And I thought Robert Klein was just a perfect New York mayor. I'd vote for him. I would vote for him too. I'd vote for him too. He was great. Then in the third one, apparently they talked to, uh, to Trump about being president and they were told no. And I told them, look, Donald Trump is not believable as president of the United States. Nobody would ever accept that as being real. And fortunately, they were able to then get Mark Cuban, who was wonderful. And then apparently Trump found out that Cuban, who was sort of his nemesis, had gotten the role and he got all upset and he threatened to sue. You know, it was just ridiculous. But Mark Ah. Cuban was, I always joke that my billionaire, or at least I did for four years, that my billionaire president is better than your billionaire president. (laughs) Oh, man. So Finn gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom and first member of the Order of the Golden Chainsaw. (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's awesome. And then I just want to point out two character names, General Gottlieb and Alves, who are uh, references to Carl Gottlieb and Joe Alves. 
right two from jaws from jaws i've had them both on the podcast cool big jaws fan so did they talk about me did they did they say they were going to put sharknado references in their next work <laughs> yes <laughs> 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 so this movie introduced the brilliant casting of david hasselhoff as finn's father love that yeah you know, there's actually, a, there's, I'm sorry to interrupt. There's a funny story about Jaws people and not referencing me. During uh, Comic-Con for Sharknado 2, I went to do uh, an interview at a TV studio in San Diego and Richard Dreyfus was there doing an interview for somebody else. And we were introduced and I said, uh, I'm here for Sharknado. And he said, what's Sharknado? And it just broke my heart. Oh, man. Just broke my heart. Anyhow, that's it. Well, I apologize on behalf of everyone. <laughs> so my favorite line in Sharknado 3 uh-huh. is David Hasselhoff saying, the independence needs to fly. <laughs> the shuttle. Uh, just him saying it. It's just so perfect. Okay. Anyway, I just want to leave. Thank you. Yeah, I just, I'm a big Hasselhoff fan. So my was, my favorite of, of his lines was uh, something like, we're not dead yet. He was great. He was brilliant. It totally, yeah. he totally uh, added so much. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so it's so self-aware. You know, he and his place in in pop culture is sort of self-aware. And and so having him in a self-aware movie like that was really perfect. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And so the movie ends with them in space, sharks in space and re-entering the which, atmosphere. Which which <laughs> I I have gone on record as saying is that that's the first thing that isn't theoretically possible. Up until that moment, everything in Sharknado in three movies was at least theoretically possible. That's true. There have been real NATOs. There's been fish right. NATOs, frog NATOs, jellyfish NATOs, worm NATOs, and alligator NATOs. I looked it all up. <laughs> I don't know about the alligator ones. There's but... an instance. Well, here, I, uh, in 1887, New York Times reported alligators just flopping somewhere, eight of them. So I okay. don't know. Can you believe the New York Times? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but there it is. There it is. So this one ends with uh, Finn being swallowed by a shark, Tara being swallowed by a shark, re-entering the atmosphere from space in the shark. Tara Reed gives birth to the child, her child, uh, Gil, the son, in the shark, and then gets smushed, or we think she gets smushed. And then you turn right. to Twitter again for April lives or April dies. So just right. determining. And so I, that, that one, I went the reverse. Instead of it being the same shark, we think it's going to be the same shark, and then it's different sharks. So that was really creative. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tara's surviving was much more impressive because uh, Finn used a parachute. That's right. Tara That's did right. Not. That's right. But those two bits, giving birth in the shark and Finn punching a hole in the shark and then using his parachute, th- that was sort of my answer to what's going to be the Sharknado moment of this movie. That parachute thing came to me. I was riding my bike along the beach and thinking about what is it going to be? Because this time they weren't settling for, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there. They wanted to know up front. Like I said, each, each successive movie had more, had more oversight. Uh, and this time they, they wanted to know up front. And uh, I was riding along the beach and that idea came to me. And I stopped and I got my phone out and I called Anthony. I said, what do you think about this? And he said, I love it. So that was that, was that moment. Very cool. So April lives. <laughs> she lives to go for an Academy Award for this uh, one more time. And then, <laughs> and then the timing of the fourth movie couldn't have been better. Timing with the Star Wars, The Force Awakens, leading to the greatest title, The Fourth Awakens, Sharknado yes. 4. So that worked out. And this one takes place in Vegas. And now we have 
five, we've time jumped five years. Asterix has developed a system to keep the world safe from Sharknadoes. But alas, I was impressed. The opening is, is really good. And I timed it and I looked at the time and 19 minutes before the opening credits. <laughs> Yeah, we joked about that. Each successive movie went longer. The teaser went longer than the previous one. Yeah. Yeah, but that was a great teaser with the car and the parachutes. and the, Yep. Yeah. The, uh, the thing about the fourth one is I came up with an idea. Once they, once they presented the, the title that they wanted it to be called The Fourth Awakens, I came up with what I thought was a brilliant idea for a promo that we would run months before the movie came out. Because you know how The Force Awakens ends with Rey climbing all those endless steps, and then she meets Luke Skywalker on the hilltop. She holds out the lightsaber, helicopter shot, and and the end. Right. So I wanted to do this promo for Sharknado 4 before anybody knew what the title was going to be, uh, to reveal what the title would be, is we would start with Cassie Serbo as Nova, probably at Vasquez Rocks, uh, which is a famous... Uh, location out in the desert near Los Angeles, climbing the rocks. We'd start on a feet. We do. We would do it uh, shot by shot, the same as, as start the Star Wars ending. And we would show her feet going up and up, up this mountain. And then finally, she would come out at the top of the hill and there would be this figure in a hoodie and he would turn around and pull the hoodie back and it would be Finn. And she would reach into her bag and pull out the chainsaw and hold it to him. And then we would cut to Sharknado, The Fourth Awakens. And everybody thought that was a great idea. And then Cassie Skirbo ended up not being in the movie and we couldn't shoot that. And that that was one of my greatest disappointments uh, related to Sharknado. That would have been great. Because you wouldn't know what it was. You got it. You got her at the end, but the very, very end. Well, it wasn't actually her. Oh, was it? No, you, you wouldn't know. It would be an actual stealth ad because you'd see these feet and you'd see this girl walking up and you wouldn't see who it was at first. And so people would wouldn't know quite what it was and they'd be watching and hopefully it would it would intrigue them. What's going on here? And wait, this seems kind of like the Star Wars thing. And then for it to be Sharknado, I just thought it would have been hilarious. And alas, we did not get to do it. Oh, what could have been? What could yep. have been? This yep. one features Gilbert Gottfried and uh, a many NATOs. You've upped it. No more, wa- not just water-based NATOs. <sighs> now yeah. we had boulder, fire, hail, lightning, cow, and oil. NATOs. Yeah. Yep. So many NATOs. <laughs> yeah, that was, the, that was the marching orders for the fourth one. I was kind of, to be honest, I was a bit disillusioned. I thought we should have gone international for the fourth one, and they wanted to milk one more domestic... Sharknado. I thought it was a mistake because we ended up just sort of, I thought, covering familiar territory and having to resort to these other kinds of NATOs, you know, which I guess were sort of clever, but they weren't Sharknados. And I don't know, it just it just felt like we were starting to to stretch it thin, whereas we could have done some new interesting stuff. And I had proposed a lot of uh, new interesting character development that they wouldn't let us get into. I had suggested that, uh, and in fact, I wrote the script this way, and it ended up being changed afterwards. My version had Nova in it, and it's five years later, and they think uh, April is dead, and Nova has been helping to raise Gil, uh, and they're living on this farm, and Finn and Nova's long-simmering sexual tension has simmered higher after five years of her serving as a surrogate mother to his son. And when they're in the house in the tornado, he rescues her through a hole in the floor and pulls her into the house. 
and they finally kiss. Uh, and we, we build up all this tension. Then finally they kiss. And then the, the house crashes to the ground. Like 30 seconds later, April walks through the door to help rescue them. So Finn does, has this emotional whiplash where he's finally put his memories of April to rest. And it looks like he's going to have a, a future with Nova. And then it turns out that April's alive. And I thought that was just great material to mine. And then it didn't happen. So that would have been great. I, I can I can picture that. In, in that scenario, is Gary Busey's still a top scientist and is April still a Terminator? Yeah, well, she was still Robo April and her father was a top scientist. I didn't know who was going to play her father when I was writing it. Right. <laughs> cool. This one had a lot of Terminator, Wizard of Oz, a lot of good, mm-hmm. a lot of themes. Yeah. What as this movie was sort of finishing up, what led you to not become not to go on to write five and six? Well, as you may have guessed from those two, what could have been mm-hmm. is that I was a bit dis- getting a bit disillusioned with the process. As each movie went along and the franchise became more and more popular, more and more of a pop culture phenomenon, the executives were trusting me less and less which I found kind of ironic. The guy who had created this in the first place was being told how to make it more successful instead of letting me do my thing. And, and by the fourth one, uh, that had just become very frustrating. They did a market research study, Sci-Fi commissioned a market research study after the third movie to find out why Sharknado was popular. And then they had the results of this market research study and they were like, here, this, here it is in black and white. We asked people, when you watch Sharknado, are you watching it for crazy shark kills or for character development? And what is somebody going to say when <laughs> right. they're asked why they're watching Sharknado? Of course, they're going to say for the crazy shark kills and the cameos. We don't watch Sharknado for character development. The point is, you have to have characters that you're invested in carrying you through the length of the movie or you're going to lose interest. Uh, it can't just be cameos and crazy shark kills. That's the special sauce that makes it fun. But you have to have something that holds your interest along the way. And by the fourth one, they were like, no, no, forget about all that character stuff. Uh, We just want you to add in all sorts of different NATOs and all these cameos and all these pop culture references. The funny thing is in, in the first movie, they wanted me to cut all the pop culture references that I had put in because, you know, pop culture references, they become quickly dated. Now, my argument is if you use classic pop culture references, they don't become dated. So you don't do things that happened last year. You do things that happened 20 years ago that are part of pop culture, that have cemented their place in pop culture. So that's why you can do Star Wars references and Star Trek references and Jaws references, but you don't do... After Earth references? After Earth references. (laughs) (laughs) And so by the fourth movie... They'd gone the other way and were forcing me to put in pop culture references that were way too recent and that weren't classic in any way and that didn't really feed into the story. And so there, there was all of that coming at the same time that I was working on another script. Uh, and by the way, changes had been made to my script for the fourth one without my knowledge. And that also kind of bothered me a little. Uh, I showed up on the first day of shooting of the fourth one. And they were shooting scenes that didn't sound anything. The plot of the scene was what I'd written, but the dialogue had changed and, and a lot of the details had changed. And that kind of put me off a bit. And then I had another project that I was working on around the time that uh, 
the fifth one would have started. I was frustrated and the asylum was frustrated with me being frustrated. And, and we just sort of came to a, a mutual decision that it would be, uh, it would be best to Perfect. step away at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the survey that they presented you was just full of loaded questions. Most yeah, people, it was yeah. a push. It was a push. What they, in politics, they call it a push poll. <laughs> right. Commonly, uh, when people who don't know how to actually write surveys, they get the answers mm-hmm. they want <laughs> because yeah. that's how they know how to write the questions. So yeah. uh, have you watched five and six? I did. Okay. I won't ask for your review, but okay. I'll tell you my review. I didn't like five at all, except for the opening. I thought the Raiders of the Lost Ark opening that they did was something I would have liked to have done very much. And I enjoyed that. I didn't really care for the rest of the movie. The sixth one, I there there were actually a lot of pieces of that that I enjoyed. Plus, I'm in it, so I have I right. have to. Like You're it. in three too, right? You're in in one. Yeah, I'm in two. I'm in two, three, and six. Excellent. So it was nice that they had you in it. Yeah, yeah, and it was in the last scene, which was I think the last or almost the last thing they shot, uh, and it was a nice way to wrap it up. Uh, and it was the only time I ever spoke in any of my cameos. And it was nice coming back to the set and seeing seeing everybody that I'd known for, for all those years. That's cool. All right. Well, at least you had a nice uh, bow on it. I ha- yeah. Ended on good terms. So what are, you, what are you working on now? What's next for Thunder Levin? Well, I've got a bunch of projects. The, the pandemic kind of threw a, a few monkey wrenches my way. Uh, in February of 2020, a project that I'd been developing for a while called Deadbeard, the zombie pirate musical had just found its financing and we had scheduled a meeting with the investors for the middle of March to finalize the deal. And they, they, it was an investment group from New York and they were flying out for something else. And we were going to meet in LA to finalize the financing deal for, for dead beer. Then the strangest thing happened. The world ended uh, (laughs) and, and that whole deal fell apart. And, and so now we're sort of rejiggering and we're in the process of trying to put together a new deal to make uh, Deadbeard the zombie pirate musical. That sounds like a really fascinating idea. I'll, I will keep my eye. I, I noticed on your IMDb, you did, you did a story by, and I and Zaring did story by, Zombie Tidal Wave. Right. That well, that, that's directed. Right. right. That was the project I was working on that would have conflicted with Sharknado 5. Got it. I mean, I actually wrote several drafts of that script, but then later on it was, uh, it was changed significantly. And so I ended up with just the, the shared story credit with Ian. But yeah, that, I was working on that for like a year. But yeah, so, uh, so we've got uh, Deadbeard, the zombie pirate musical. I've got a serious science fiction film I'm trying to get going called Star Child. And I've got a new TV series that I'm just putting the finishing touches on now that we'll be uh, trying to sell to the, to the streamers in the next couple of months. All right. Well, that sounds exciting. Where can people keep up with you on the socials? I am on Twitter at Thunderlevin. I'm on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Thunderlevin official. Awesome. Thunder, I, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. I really appreciate it. I had a blast. Nice talking through all these movies with you and hearing from the writer. That was good insight. I appreciate that. You bet. Thank you. All right. How amazing was Thunder Eleven, huh? How awesome was that conversation? I hope you love Sharknado as much as I do and that you got so much out of that or that converted you and now you love Sharknado more than ever before. 
Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. I know, it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, Hashtag Roundup app at the iTunes App Store or Google Play Store. Follow us at Hashtag Roundup on Twitter. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. The hashtag for this episode is Hashtag Ad sharks to movies or tv now not only was it inspired by thunder 11 my guest but this is a hashtag from the good folks at sci-fi tags a weekly game on hashtag roundup that had thunder 11 as a guest host of this game hashtag add sharks to movies or tv and master jedi mara from sci-fi tags was kind enough to introduce me to thunder that's how that happened so awesome for that huh thank you the whole team at sci-fi tags Tags for that. All right. Hashtag add sharks to movies or TV. The ultimate shark mashup movie. You mash up sharks, anything sharks with a movie title or something movies or anything TV related. And shark hilarity ensues. Tweet your own. Tag us at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. I'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, here are some hashtag add sharks to movies or TV tweets for inspiration. Raiders of the Lost Shark, you're going to need a bigger love boat. Eat, pray, shark! These are amazing hashtag add sharks to movies or TV tweets. A river shark runs through it. The truth about cats and jaws. Zen and the sharks of motorcycle maintenance. Huckleberry Finn. Caddy shark. These are great hashtag add sharks to movies or TV tweets. Shark 54, where are you? Herman's Hammerhead. The Saw Shark Redemption. Harry Potter and the Order of the Great White Shark. Great White Sharks Can't Jump. Fifty Shades Sharker. Shark-in-Law. The Shark Knight. And our final is a movie quote from the Terminator. Rather, Sharkinator. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motor shark. That was a hor- I apologize for my Terminator impression. But that wraps up. Hashtag add sharks to movies or TV. What? All right, tweet your own. I'll show you some Twitter love. All these are retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. Show them some Twitter love. With the hashtag over, the interview over, it can only mean one thing. Oh my goodness, episode 184 has come to a close. I want to thank my special guest, Thunder Levin. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.